Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Seventh week of a series that we are calling Seek First, which is the theme of the Father's House here in 2024. And we are studying out this theme by, as Isaac mentioned, looking through the Sermon on the Mount, a collection of teachings found in the book of Matthew, where Jesus kind of gives us this new manifesto for living, kingdom living, if you will. Uh, our predominant scripture for this series, the main uh, thought uh, both for the year and for the series, is found in Matthew 6:33, where Jesus says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will give you everything you need. Come on, that's a good, that's a good promise. That's a good promise. And uh, we've talked about that scripture quite a bit over the last six weeks. We unpacked what he means by righteousness, what he means by the kingdom, what it looks like to seek. We talked about the Beatitudes and discovering blessing and even the worst of life circumstances. We've talked about persecution and how we've been called to run for our faith. And we looked at salt and light in a dark and bland world. But then last week, we had... Uh, a grand old time as we started the first of a two-week sermon on the subjects of rage and revenge. And uh, you might recall that we talked about how to redeem our rage and, and allow it to compel us to action, but we never got to revenge, which means that today we get to talk about revenge. And I, I, I didn't expect it to be as timely a sermon as it ended up being in light of the fact that last Sunday we lost the Super Bowl and, and revenge has been on the mind of, of many people for the last week. So I'd like you to close your eyes and just picture the face of Kermit the Fro I mean, Patrick Mahomes. And <laughs> come on, the guy sounds like Kermit when he talks, right? Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, that's what he sounds like. So uh, keep his face in mind and let's, let's read our key text for the day as we talk about revenge. Okay. Matthew 5, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for one mile, carry it for two. If the chiefs beat you in one Super Bowl, let them beat you in, an I'm just kidding, okay, too soon, too soon, okay. <laughs> Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say the opposite, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In this way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. I'm sorry. I know you're probably hoping for a more encouraging set of scriptures this morning. Uh, we've had some doozies for the last couple of weeks. Don't worry. We're going to lighten things up by talking about divorce next week. So I'm sure that'll be super fun. Um, <laughs> but once again, we are reminded here in the words of Jesus that it is challenging to live according to the call of the kingdom. It, it, is, it is not an easy set of standards to live by. But as we've reminded ourselves of every single week in this series, we do not have the luxury to pick and choose which scriptures in the Bible we want to apply to our lives. The Bible is not like Kura Sushi in Stonestown, the conveyor belt that comes by where you just get to grab your chopsticks and pick the stuff you like. Like, I'll take blessing, and I'll take a little bit of healing, and I'll take some prosperity, and then leave all the other stuff that doesn't feel 
as appetizing as it goes by. No, it's a full meal deal. The scriptures are, are all or nothing. And, and if we are going to become the kingdom people that Jesus is calling us to become, we need to embrace the difficult teachings of Jesus and discover what it looks like to apply these truths to our lives. So are you up for that yet again today? Uh, here's what we're going to do. I want to I talk about this title and, and how we can go about resisting revenge. Last week we talked about redeeming rage. Today I want to talk about resisting revenge. Uh, let's, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, to speak to us. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here among us today. God, thank you that you, uh, you, you always grace us with your nearness when we draw near to you in worship. There has never been a Sunday in the last five and a half years where we have not lifted up the name of Jesus and been met with your presence. And here you are once again today to minister to your people to fill us up, as Isaac mentioned a moment ago. I pray that as we go to these words of Jesus, despite the challenging nature of what's written here, uh, that you would use these words to cut to the heart of where we're living, transform our thinking, transform our lives before we leave this place. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and the church said, amen, amen. So I wanna to start today kinda of in the same place that we started last week, especially for those who may not have been with us. I wanna look at this pedagogical phrase that Jesus uses here once last week, twice today, and we'll continue to use in the weeks ahead as we get to some of these more challenging uh, statements of Christ. And uh, the, the, the phrase goes a little bit like this. You have heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, and then Jesus makes a statement about what's been said. And then he challenges it, but I say, and fills in the blank with his new way of thinking and, and living. As I, as I mentioned last week, the, the first half of that phrase was very common among the teachers of the religious law in Jesus' day. It, it would be standard for someone to stand up um, at the temple on a, on a Saturday or Sunday, and as they opened up the scriptures, the intro to their sermon would be, you have heard it said, and then they would turn to some of the Old Testament scriptures and the Torah, and they would share what has been said for centuries. And, and Jesus starts his teaching out the exact same way. You have heard it said, and then he fills in the blank with some stuff that they'd heard. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, love your neighbor, hate your enemies, standard stuff. But, but then Jesus does what none of the teachers of the law would have ever done before. He begins to challenge what's been written and practiced for centuries. He says, but I say, which would have been shocking, <gasps> a moment for the entire audience to go, whoa, 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 who does this guy think he is? We've understood this truth for now hundreds, thousands of years, and this person standing in front of us is challenging the law? This would have been absurd to his audience because in those three words, Jesus is suggesting that he has the authority to speak to the law and challenge it and flip it on its head. He is saying in no uncertain terms, you guys have lived by a certain way of thinking, a certain way of, of processing and responding now for years, but the kingdom has come among you, and now that I'm present, I'm flipping everything you understand on its head. If you're gonna be my follower, you don't get to live by the old standard. You don't get to live by your old ways of thinking. No, you need to embrace a new set of standards called the kingdom way, especially as it pertains to revenge. And again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. It is important that we recognize the weight of these words, especially as we talk about the subject of revenge, because whether we realize it or not, all of us have a, you've heard it said, wired into our human nature. An old way of thinking and living and responding with revenge that probably isn't the kingdom way. I think if we're honest, 
many of us would probably align in our human broken nature with the stuff Jesus is talking about here. The eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of stuff. I mean, think about it for a moment. I think we're all really wired for revenge. In our broken nature, we kind of like the idea of vengeance. Like no one wants the, the bad guy to win at the end of the movie. We always want to see the, the villain taken out by the hero. No one wants the Joker to overtake the Batman. No one wants the corrupt government to win over Jason Bourne, right? Like you, you, want, you want the good guy to win and you want him to take out all of his vengeance on the bad guy. We love it when the corrupt politician gets exposed. We, we love it when the criminal gets what's coming to them. We, we love when the cheater gets cheated on and the con artist gets conned. Like it just feels right. There's a, there's a degree of vengeance that's just woven into the fabric of our humanity that says, yeah, that, that, that feels like it's supposed to feel. Anything else just feels wrong. I was, I was watching this uh, documentary uh, a couple of weeks ago about cryptocurrency and a, and a couple of guys that, that swindled a bunch of people out of money on Netflix. Anyone else just really love those shows? Uh, okay, like seven of us. That's cool. I don't know. I love like Dirty Money, American Greed. I love those shows. Like today on American Greed, find out how one man stole all of a senior citizen's money by overpromising and never delivering. I love that stuff. I don't know what that says about me, but I love it. All right. And I'm watching the show and uh, the entire documentary, they're interviewing one of the three guys who was kind of at the top of the food chain uh, who swindled a bunch of people out of money for a product they never actually developed. And you could just tell that this guy was slimy. Like he just, he looked slimy, he sounded slimy, he had like this Jersey accent, slick back hair, three-piece suit, kind of a, by the way, if you're from Jersey, my bad, I'm sure you're super awesome. No, come on, we all know, right? <laughs> Let's just be real. So, so they're interviewing this guy, and, uh, and, and at one point in the documentary near the end, there's this moment where the SEC subpoenas the records of this company and uh, they hire this in-house counsel to represent them and the in-house counsel reaches out to their former attorney that they had hired uh, when they didn't have in-house and uh, as they reach out, they, they can't find the attorney. Come to find out it was a, a 19-year-old kid who was in college posing as an attorney. The con artists got con. And for a moment, it's just like poetic justice. You're like, yeah, that feels right. They got swindled by a kid. But, but that, that sense of justice is soon robbed from your heart because you find out a few moments later that this slimy con artist guy ends up cooperating with the SEC. He confesses everything, rats out his friends. They all get like eight years in prison, but he gets off with immunity. He gets off scot-free, doesn't have to pay anybody back, doesn't have to go to jail. And I would love to tell you that as a pastor, the first thought that went through my mind was, what a beautiful picture of the grace of God. The guy confessed, and instead of getting what he deserved, he received mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have treated your servant. I would love to tell you that's how I respond. That thought didn't even cross my mind. Like the rest of us, I'm like, are you kidding me? Kill him. Like, make him pay for what he's done. It just didn't feel right. Why? Because all of us have this thirst for revenge kind of wired into us. We all long to see the bad guy pay for what they did. Justice feels like revenge. And, and while the heart for justice does align with God, in fact, the Bible speaks quite exhaustively about the subject of justice, 
Jesus seems to suggest here that, that we need to be careful in how we process these feelings of revenge, specifically how we deal with people who have wronged us or hurt us. Because while we might share God's heart for justice, we can't take God's job into our hands. We don't get to exercise our will against other people when we're wronged. So, so let's, let's dive into these words of Jesus for a couple moments. He, he starts out by quoting some, some statements from the Old Testament. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, in Jewish law, this was known as the lex talionis. Uh, it was the law of tit for tat. And the lex talionis stated that all people had the right to retributive justice. Meaning, if someone hurt you, you should be able to hurt them in like kind. If someone took something from you, you should be able to take the same thing from, from them. And the, the book of Exodus, in fact, I just read this yesterday with a group of guys I'm reading through the Bible with this year, uh, Exodus 21 and I think 22, there's a rather exhaustive list of tit for tat stuff. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, foot for foot, life for life, on and on and on it goes. But, but the problem with retributive justice is that it's never satisfied. I think if we looked at our own lives and obviously as we read through the narrative of scripture, you discover rather quickly that it doesn't work. This revenge seems to have a, an unquenchable thirst, a desire for more. In concept, it should work, right? They took from me, I take from them. They, they hurt me, I hurt them in like kind. It should work, but I think we all know that it doesn't. E even when we're able to get back in like kind, it just, it just doesn't sit right. You don't feel settled. In fact, in our broken nature, what we often long for is a greater wound to be inflicted, more pain to be inflicted. They need to understand how badly I've suffered as a result of it, and that feels right. And if you don't believe me, just have some kids and watch the way they treat one another, and you'll understand retributive justice just does not work in and of itself. And in that sense, revenge becomes this ever-escalating problem that just continues to fuel our broken, sinful nature. Uh, I love this quote from my favorite theologian. I, I quote him often, but uh, look at what N.T. Wright says. He, he says this uh, in uh, one of his most, well, one of his publishings of, of, of theology. He says, vengeance keeps evil in circulation, whether in a family or a town or in an entire community like the Middle East, the culture of revenge, unless broken, is never ending. Both sides will be able to justify further atrocities by reference to those they, they themselves have suffered. Selah on that for a moment. Ironically, perhaps prophetically, that statement was published in 2002, decades before all the things we are seeing unfold right now in the Middle East. And those are, those are weighty words. Think about that. Revenge, vengeance, it keeps evil in circulation. When individuals, families, communities, nations, when they become hell-bent on revenge, it just keeps the cycle of evil going. The snowball effect of getting worse and worse and worse as we inflict more pain on more people only to find that it never really satisfies. Which then begs the question, 
that our title poses. If this is what keeps evil in circulation, how are we to break that cycle by resisting revenge? How can we actively participate in destroying evil? Come on, if we're gonna be the heroes in this story, how do we actually resist this broken sinful desire in all of us so that we don't keep evil in circulation? And fortunately for us, Jesus answers that question. In this text, he does what he always does. He, he provides a couple of fictional illustrations for us that allow us to apply the principles of truth that he is conveying through this Sermon on the Mount as it pertains to revenge. Three, to be exact. Uh, come back to Matthew chapter five one more time. He says this, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for one mile, carry it for two. Now those examples probably seem archaic and irrelevant to most of us. I don't think anyone here is wearing a tunic or a cloak today. I'm looking around, I don't see any cloaks. You've probably never been asked by a soldier to carry their gear. But if we dig beneath the surface of these statements, we will find there are in fact some timeless truths that we can apply to our own lives, yes, even now in 2024. Uh, let's start with the statements Jesus makes about the face. I feel like I can't say face without sounding like Christopher Walken. <laughs> that was a great commercial, by the way, in the Super Bowl. The eyes are the windows to your face. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, so Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, then you should turn the other cheek to them also. Now, now face value, this, this, this sounds like a rather odd thing to say. <laughs> a willful submission to physical abuse. Like if someone hits you, just let them keep doing it over and over and over and over again. In fact, I heard a story once of a kid who was in kids' church, uh, not here, and they were studying through the Sermon on the Mount and they were actually in this particular section of the sermon. And later on that day, he went home and he got in trouble and his, his mom disciplined him by spanking him. So she spanked him on the bottom. And after she got done spanking him on one side, he turned around and he's like, the other side now, please, mommy. Like he, this, he took this literally you got to love a child's literal application of the scriptures, right? Like, hopefully he didn't do that with the whole cut off your hand and pluck out your eye stuff that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks as well. But, but at face value, that's what it looks like Jesus is advocating here. Hey, if someone hits you, let them keep on hitting you. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, if we dig a little bit deeper, what we discover is that this is actually nothing to do with physical abuse and everything to do with insult and humiliation. Let me prove it. In fact, you're going to help me with an illustration. Turn to the person next to you. Don't worry, you're not going to slap anybody in church, all right? <laughs> Why'd you stop going to the Father's house? The pastor told us to slap one another. It was really weird. Felt like a cult. Don't worry, it's not going to be that. So turn to the person next to you. Come on. Do what I'm asking you to do. Come on, turn to the person next to you. If you're right-handed, I want you to pretend that you are about to slap them. Don't do it. Pretend you're about to slap them on the right cheek. Or if you're left-handed, pretend you're about to slap them on the left cheek. I can see it, okay, now put your hands down. You understand why that's difficult, right? A right-handed person slapping somebody on the right, you have to contort your hand in a very weird way. And it's not a very effective slap, right? <laughs> Doesn't work. You're getting it. Okay, it's a way homer. You can try it out in the car later, all right? Yeah, the only effective way for a right-handed person to slap somebody on the right cheek is to backhand them. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. 
To be back can't, got it, thank you. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And in biblical times, as in present, to be backhanded was the ultimate sign of disrespect. It, it, it was a statement of insult and humiliation. A statement that would only be reserved for the lowest of the low in society. A public shaming, if you will. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Not suffering physical abuse, but suffering insult and humiliation. And he says, when kingdom people are insulted, when they're shamed, when they're humiliated, they don't look to get revenge. They don't try to respond back and say, you better honor me. How dare you disrespect me? Now they, they receive the dishonor. They receive the insult. They receive the humiliation. In fact, not just once, but they'll continue to receive it over and over again. And as if that didn't make us feel uncomfortable enough, Jesus goes on. He says, not only should you be willing to suffer at an emotional level, this insult or humiliation, you should even be willing to suffer physical or financial harm at the hands of another. He goes on and he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, then you should give them your cloak as well. Now, in biblical times, people didn't own a bunch of clothing. They didn't have closets filled with it. Most people only had a couple of, of tunics, maybe two. They were basically long shirts, a robe of sorts that you wore. But many people in the Jewish culture only had a single cloak. Most, probably 99% of the society had one single cloak. And it was an incredibly important garment because not only did it serve as a, a coat for cold weather, but it was literally the bed you slept on at nighttime. It was the blanket you wrapped yourself up into. And because of the significance of this garment, it was literally written in Jewish law that nobody could be sued for their cloak. Go back and read it in the book of Exodus 21 through 23. You are not allowed to sue someone and hold their cloak overnight because to do so would be to subject them to undue harm, to make them suffer because they would not have what they need to keep themselves warm at night. And yet Jesus says, Though that practice is prohibited by the law, kingdom people should be able to do it willingly. If someone sues you for your tunic, give them everything. Give them your cloak as well. Translation, if you have to choose between clinging to your rights or sacrificing even at a physical or a financial level to keep the peace, then you should allow yourself to be wronged, even if there is, is, is penalty or, or physical or financial harm in the process. <sighs> okay. Yeah, I can feel the discomfort in the room. But just when you thought that Jesus was done with this two-layer uncomfortable bacon cake, he adds the icing as well. He goes on to say that we should be willing to suffer even at an institutional or governmental level as kingdom followers. He says, if a soldier asks you to carry their gear for one mile, you should be willing, willing to carry it for two. Again, cultural context important here. Remember, at this time, the Jewish people are under the Roman occupation. Rome rules the known world. And written into Roman law was the right of a soldier to force a civilian to carry their gear for up to one mile. Not to exceed one mile, but up to one mile. If a soldier was getting tired, if they were burdened with their gear, they could literally tap an unsuspecting civilian on the shoulder at any time, interrupt whatever they're doing, and say, for the next mile, you're carrying my gear for me, and you had 
to do it. Feels abusive, but they had the right according to the law. Doesn't matter how they felt about the law. The law said it, so they had to do it. Now, this has a number of applications that'll probably rub us the wrong way. It speaks to overtaxation. Speaks to the overreach of government power. It speaks to the institution or governmental power to force burdens on the people that ease the burden of the elite. And I could go on, but in doing so, I would violate everything I said about rage last week. So I'm going to stop right there. But in essence, what Jesus is saying here is that kingdom people, even when they disagree with the laws of the land, they submit themselves to the governing authorities, even to their own detriment. <laughs> this is the Romans 13. Pray for those who, who lead you. Submit yourselves to the government. The Matthew 17, Jesus, pay the taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to the Lord's what is the Lord's. It is this willful submission to the authority of institutional or governmental people because God has placed that structure in order and we're to fall in line with it. Uh, man, I can, I just, people are, they're looking at me side-eyed right now. I can feel it in the room. Like, put it all together. Look at, look at this cocktail you've just been given. Okay, kingdom people, here's your job. Suffer insult and humiliation, financial harm at the, other, at the hands of other people, and submit yourself to oppressive government models. <laughs> this is a bad time for an altar call. Who wants to follow Jesus right now, right? Like, are you kidding me? This is insane. This is about the most un-American gospel I've ever heard. In our rugged, individualistic, self-centered, suffering, light, comfort-rich culture, this does not track. That's why you feel the way you feel right now and you're looking at me the way you're looking at me right now because this does not fit into our framework of what it should feel like to be a follower of Jesus. And yet this is what he says. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom to live in a separate entity from the world that you find yourself physically in. Jesus, how, how could we be asked to embrace this lifestyle, to resist revenge at this level? Well, he gives us that as well in our text. Look again at what he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 45. He says, in this way, or when you do all of this, you're actually acting like a true child of your father who is in heaven. Translation, when you resist revenge, you are doing what your father would do, what your heavenly father has done. This, this may feel alien to your human nature, but it is deeply woven into your true nature. You may not know how to do this, but you've seen it modeled for you. Not in your society, but in your father who is in heaven. This is what he's like. Now, now this would be a great point for a moment for a disclaimer and a very important one. So please lean in and listen to this so that I don't get lambasted on social media later. God is not unjust. This is not Jesus saying that we should be passive or inactive about injustice that we should just let people continue to do wrong in our world. 
because that's how God is. He's just passively sitting back and saying, well, go ahead and destroy yourselves down there. That, that's not what he's saying. That, that would be a complete contradiction of the scriptures. God is completely just. God longs for us to be advocates and agents of change in our world. In fact, to suggest otherwise would be to invalidate everything we talked about last week and allowing rage to compel us to action. And it would incriminate Jesus for doing what he did on the planet to bring about the cause of the oppressed and the marginalized in their society. So, so that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying be inactive, just sit around, be passive about injustice. No, no, no. What Jesus is saying is that we, as kingdom people, have been called to resist revenge by actively doing the opposite of what has been done to us. That we reflect the nature of our Father in heaven when we choose to do the opposite of what has been done to us. It's not passive, it's active, it's intentional, but our job is to reflect the nature of our Father who is in heaven. That's our job. And if you're wondering, when have I ever seen the Father do this? Then just take a long look in the bathroom mirror when you get home. Let me remind you, you have not always been a child of God. <laughs> Once, not too long ago, you were also an enemy of God. Romans chapter five, verse 10. Because of our sin, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies of God. But when we were his enemies and when we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Most would not be willing to die for a good man, although one might be willing to die for an exceptionally good person, but God showed us his great love, according to Romans 5, by sending his son while we were still sinners, while we wanted nothing to do with God, he chose us anyway. All vengeance, all revenge against sin was poured out on the sinless son of God so that we could become sons and daughters of the king. Quite literally, he took out his revenge on Jesus so he did not have to take out his revenge on you. For the very same one who said, turn your cheek, did exactly that. When they beat him and they whipped him and they ripped out his beard and they disfigured his face, he did not respond with revenge. He received the suffering, the bruising, the perishing so that we could be set free. The insults of many have fallen upon him according to Psalm 69, but he didn't reject the insults. He didn't say, do you know who you're dealing with? He allowed them to beat him and insult him and dishonor him so that we could become honored sons and daughters of the king. When they took his cloak, he said, take all of me as well. When a corrupt Roman governor listened to the voice of the masses instead of the scales of justice, Jesus sat there silently and did not say a word because he knew if he spoke, it would lead to his acquittal and our condemnation. And instead, he said, say what you want, do what you want, nail me to this cross because I know that there is a family waiting on the other side of this sacrifice. And if I don't do this, the father will never make his way to the sons and the daughters that he is waiting to bring to himself. You have not always been a child. You were once an enemy of God. Guys, this is, this is bigger than just better interpersonal relationships. 
Resisting revenge is not about having more friends or keeping more peace. This is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Resisting revenge is why you're sitting in the room today. And now the call to the believer is to not just simply receive that, but to reflect it. To be what our Father has been to us. So, if that is the call to reflect the nature of Christ, then perhaps there's no better time than the present to have a moment of reflection, eh? That beautiful and uncomfortable moment that we provide in every single sermon in this series where we ask a question and force you to personalize all this so that it's not just concept, but it comes woven into the fabric of your life. So let me ask you, if resisting revenge is all about loving and not hating your enemies, let me ask, do you love your enemies? And by the way, the word enemy defined in the text here does not just mean someone who you're viscerally opposed to. It means anybody you're in opposition with. Anyone there's hostility present with. Spouse, ex-spouse, kids, family members, those who've wounded you, those who've abused you, those who've violated you, those who've robbed from you, those who've taken advantage of you sexually. Do you love your enemies? Have you resisted revenge by actively doing the opposite of what has been done to you? Have you come to a place of maturity in your faith where you can let things go and forgive? Or are you still collecting evidence and ammunition for that moment where you're gonna get back? Can you bless your enemy? Or secretly, are you hoping that they get what's coming for them? Jesus said, pray for them. How you doing on that? You praying for them? Not like the prayers in the Psalms where David is like, bash their heads against the rocks, oh God. Not those kinds of prayers. But pray for them that they would see the heart of the Father that they would experience what you've experienced. Do you love your enemies? And if you don't like the way you'd answer that question today, then in our final moments together, I wanna offer up a scripture that I think will help us in applying this very challenging principle to our lives. A scripture now as we fast forward in the New Testament written by perhaps one of the most famous enemies turned children of God, the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, come with me to the book of Romans as the worship team comes and we prepare to cl close. But Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Look at what Paul says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that disclaimer, by the way. As much as it's possible on your end. Not asking you to change anybody else. On your side of the street are things clean. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If they're thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and God will reward you. 
Now, Paul says two things happen here when we resist revenge. The first one, touch on briefly, he says, when you, when you don't take revenge, you leave room for God. I love that. You don't try to take God's responsibility out of his hands. Let's just, not in a vengeful way, but let's just be clear. God is far better at getting justice than you'll ever be. Why? Because his justice is not retributive, it's always restorative. It brings people to a place where they understand that the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus. And he's really good at not just taking care of those who are perpetrating evil, but making sure that his sons and his daughters do not suffer injustice at the hands of a perpetrator over and over and over again. So when you don't take it into your hands, you leave room for God. You let God do his job. I think that's a wise, a wise consideration. But the second thing Paul says is that when we resist this urge for revenge, that we pour burning coals on the head of our enemy. Now, that doesn't feel very kind at first. That feels a bit retributive, right? Like, <laughs> burn, like, that's what it sounds like. But it will be helpful for us to have a bit of cultural context here because it may not mean what we think it means. Um, if, if you've been at our church for uh, the, like three years or longer, you might have actually seen an illustration I'm gonna do here in just a moment. Uh, but I am recycling an illustration because I think it's such a powerful picture of, of what Paul and Jesus are speaking to as it pertains uh, to revenge. Um, also, it seemed very timely in light of the fact that we talked about burning coals last week or embers and how anger is like a coal waiting to be awakened on the inside of us. So I apologize for repeating, but I'm gonna repeat. Um, Isaac, if I could have you join me on the stage. So in biblical times, um, fire was, grab that, that bowl for me real quick. Uh, fire was a matter of life and death. Um, without fire, you couldn't cook your food, you couldn't heat your home, you couldn't purify your water, your utensils, both for uh, ceremonial purposes or just to stay healthy. Everybody needed fire. And so most homes in any given town or city had a hearth where they kept coals burning all day long and all night long to ensure that fire was always ready. However, on occasion, you might find yourself waking up to your coals being dormant. They were dead. There was no embers left. Maybe a wind blew or the rain kind of got in or someone forgot to add fire the night before. And this was a big deal because you couldn't cook your food. You couldn't warm your house. It could, in fact, be a matter of life and death. And in ancient times, if you found yourself without burning coals to ignite a fire in your home, there was a prescribed practice whereby you could go to a neighbor and ask for them to give you some of their coals. And the practice was rather odd. So you would come to your neighbor's house, you would knock on the door, and as the neighbor opened the door, you would get down on your knees and you would place a bowl on top of your head, signaling to your neighbor that you were in desperate need. It was a posture of humility. It was to say, unless you help me, unless you bless me, I'm not going to be able to survive. And if your neighbor was kind, they would go over to their hearth, they would get some of their coals, and they would begin to pour those burning coals on your head 
so that you and your family could survive. Now, now Paul says that this posture, this act is actually a picture of what it looks like when we resist revenge, when we choose to do good instead of responding with evil to those who have perpetrated evil to us. What he's saying is when your neighbor's down there on their knees, you only see the person that hurt you. You see the person that you thought was overpowering you and using their position to take advantage of you. But in the spirit, this is what they look like. In the spirit, they are a neighbor on their knees, desperately begging for help. They're hurting you because they are broken on the inside. They're perpetrating acts of violence and hatred against you because they don't know what you know or who you know. They're like a neighbor with an empty bowl saying, will you bless me? Will you love me? Will you display to me what I have not displayed to you? I'm broken and I'm in a humble position. Will you treat me like God? And the Bible says that when we treat them like the Father, they see him and not us. Now, I know how challenging that might sound because even as you picture that enemy standing at the door of your house with a bowl on their head, probably blessing them is the last thing we'd think to do. Like, no, I'll slam the door in their face. I'll kick them while they're down. How, how can I do that? Well, remember Romans chapter five. You were not always in a position where you had a hearth full of coals. In fact, the only way we can do this is when we remember that there was a time where the tables were turned. A moment where we came to Jesus and we had nothing to offer, but instead of giving judgment and slamming the door in our face, instead of punishing as our sins deserve, he said, I will bless you. I will save you. I will give my life for you. I will take your shame. I will take your failure. And I will pour out my grace on you instead. The nature of the gospel is not simply that we have received. The nature of the gospel is that we understand what we've received so that we can turn back around and give to those who find themselves in the same place that we were once found because we know the one who did not treat us as our sins deserve, but who blessed us and honored us instead. Can I get an amen from the nine o'clock service? Thank you, Isaac. This is the gospel that we receive so we can reflect. Let, let, let me pray for us as, as we conclude. Jesus, these words are so challenging. The tension that we feel even as we consider what you're suggesting here, it's, it's so foreign to us in our world. It, it goes against every grain in our, our human nature. But Jesus, I, I thank you that you did not treat us as we deserved. For those in the room who've been on the journey for a while, I pray that we would remember the joy of salvation, that moment where you, you blessed us, you revealed yourself to us. You didn't make us jump through hoops and 
follow a bunch of rules before you, you poured out your grace. You started with grace. Now we ask that you would give us the strength and the capacity to do the same to others. Today, I wonder if maybe there's somebody in the room who would say they resonate with the guy on their knees at the door. Maybe you've been away from Jesus and you find yourself with nothing to offer him but a pile of sin and an empty bowl in the spirit today. But the good news of the gospel is if you've come to the end of yourself, if you're desperate and hungry and thirsty, you've tried everything and it doesn't satisfy, Jesus is opening the door and he's ready to pour out grace on you today. And if you're in that space and you need to receive salvation this morning, you need to receive the grace of God, I wanna pray with you a simple prayer of commitment. And as we do that, with no one looking around, if you need to be included in this prayer, would you just simply lift up your hand and look at me and say, Tim, that's me. I need to come to Jesus today. I need to receive his grace today. Thank you, bro, got you right there. Yeah, I got you right there, sir. I got you right there, ma'am, awesome, yeah. Hallelujah. All right, if I didn't see you, I'm sorry, it's okay, Jesus did. I want everyone to repeat after me as we pray this prayer out with those making the decision. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you to be your disciple. Forgive me of my sins and help me walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate with all of those making that decision this morning. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.